Believers are called to be people of the truth, even when the truth isn't popular and even when the truth is denied by the culture around us. As you know, in recent days, the Supreme Court of the United States declared same-sex marriage to be legal in all 50 states. So what does that mean for the church and how should we, as followers of Christ, respond? We'll talk about that today on The Truth Forum with David Parsons. We are honored to have Dr. Albert Moeller as our guest today. Dr. Moeller is a prominent author and speaker who serves as president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's often quoted in our nation's leading newspapers, and he appears frequently as a guest on national news programs. His sought-after commentary on moral, cultural, and theological issues can be accessed at albertmoeller.com, and let me encourage you to take advantage of that. Well, it's time now to join Truth Remains founder and teacher, David Parsons, and our guest, Dr. Albert Moeller. Hello, and welcome to the Truth Forum. I'm Dave Parsons. Thank you for joining me for this special edition. In an uncertain world, how wonderful to be a part of the faith that has stood the test of time and is unshakable. In the wake of the recent Supreme Court decision making same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states, I immediately called my friend Dr. Al Moeller, and he graciously agreed to be my guest on the program today. Welcome to the Truth Forum, Al. I'm honored to have you with us, and I am personally very grateful for your support of our ministry at Truth Remains. Thank you for standing with us. Dave, I proudly stand with you. I'm so thankful for you and for the ministry of Truth Remains, and I'm glad to have this conversation with you today. I want to get your thoughts on the ruling that came down from the Supreme Court declaring same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. I know you put out a special edition of the briefing that's helped all of us understand the specifics of that judgment. Um, Clearly, this ruling goes beyond redefining marriage. How significantly does this change the way the U.S. government will operate going forward? You know, we knew this was going to be a big decision, and I think most of us expected that one way or another, given the trajectory of the court, they were going to legalize same-sex marriage. But the reach of the decision actually went a lot further than that. In one sense, the actual majority opinion is a lot more radical than what most of us had expected. So what we're looking at here is the fact that the federal government of the United States is placing itself decidedly on one side of a great moral debate. And when you ask what's going to be the effect from the federal government, I think we need to recognize that one of the functions of government. Now, in Romans chapter 13, we're told that government has some very well-defined functions given to it by God, that government in the first place is to uphold justice and righteousness, and that government is an institution created by God. We understand that. We also understand that in a sinful world, this good institution that God has given us can turn in radical opposition to God and his word. And it will use its coercive powers to try to make that happen all throughout the entire culture. And that's the biggest issue we're really confronting here. We're looking at the fact that the redefinition of marriage that has been legally accomplished, we won't say it's been accomplished in the great scheme of things, but it's been legally accomplished by the Supreme Court of the United States, that is going to set in motion a series of effects in the law, in public policy, and in the larger culture that will change utterly the landscape around us. You know, in one sense, one of the things we're looking at here is what's called the expressive power of law. That's very crucial. And the expressive power of law means that by its legal decisions, a court 
or by its legislation, a, uh, a legislature sends signals about the vision of morality the society is to follow. So the biggest impact of this, other than the fact that immediately all 50 states have to legalize same-sex marriage, is that the Supreme Court of the United States has done its very best to say homosexual relationships are morally good. Homosexual relationships that eventually end up being defined as married are very good. They are just as good as heterosexual unions. That is the moral messaging that is coming by, again, what's called the expressive power of law. So the expressive power of the Supreme Court decision is exactly what you saw championed by so many activists on Friday and in the aftermath. They're saying, look, this validates us. That is exactly what the court sought to do. That's actually the central argument of Justice Anthony Kennedy in the majority opinion. He said it is our duty to vindicate and to validate Uh, those who have been marginalized by the prejudice of a larger society. But when you're talking about the impact of this decision, when you get beyond the expressive powers of the law, you get to the coercive powers of the law. And this is massive. We need to keep in mind that the federal government has reached into virtually every dimension of American life, whether it's Social Security or now health insurance or whether it's uh, education and accreditation or the funding that comes through all kinds of federal mechanisms. So right at the very forefront of all of this is the fact that every business is going to have to comply in one way or another to one extent or another with the federal government's redefinition of marriage. And you can count on the fact that over time, coercion is going to be brought in ever greater intensity on this issue. And it's not just the business world, especially those who are, for instance, involved in Christian higher education or those who are involved in, a, in, in Christian ministry that might include uh, the, the ministry of adoption, other things like this. When the federal government redefines marriage, eventually it's going to require that uh, even religious institutions, even nonprofit agencies, even non-governmental institutions accept its redefinition of marriage or pay the price. So, David, that's what we're looking at. We're going to be paying the price. We're going to be paying an increasing price on so many of these issues. And the coercive power of the government is going to come against us in ways that this generation of Christians in this country has never found even imaginable. But now it's going to be very real. And, you know, it didn't take much time. Just 48 hours after the Supreme Court handed down this decision, Time magazine ran on its website a front-page article that was calling for the ending of tax exemption for religious institutions. And uh, that's that's an issue we're simply going to have to confront. There it was thrown at us 48 hours after the decision, or even less than that. And you're going to see that kind of proposal being made. And that's an issue that would require its own conversation, but there are far too many younger evangelicals who don't understand why the tax exemption is in place or just how important it is. Uh, this would put an end to many Christian ministries. It's not a question of just tax exemption. It is, it is very truly a question of existence. Yeah, great point. Persecution for the church in America is seemingly very near. In Canada, where same-sex marriage has been legal since 2005, it's actually considered discrimination to define marriages between a man and a woman. Uh, One may face legal fees, fines, unemployment, and more. Uh, What does this law mean in the way of persecution for true believers in America? You know, that's a really sobering question, isn't it? Uh, I think the word persecution is one that, first of all, comes to our mind when we think about those whose lives are, are quite truly on the line for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who've been put into prison, beaten in prison, those who have had their, uh, their assets uh, stripped from them, and those, those have been separated from their families. The, the bigger issue we're going to face in this country is the, the kind of repression and marginalization 
that comes when a society says you are not in the mainstream. You do not deserve the privileges and the respect that come from being in the mainstream of this society. There is also going to be some coercion that will undoubtedly come. That's what I was speaking about earlier. That coercion is going to come to us in a way that's going to be very oppressive. And in one sense, it will be persecution. Uh, I think we need to be very careful that we don't put that on the same par as those who are facing, for instance, the threat of death from Islamic terrorism in many parts of the world due to their faith in Christ. But we do need to recognize this is going to be a matter of oppressive, repressive coercion in this country against believers who are precisely standing for what is revealed in God's inerrant and infallible word. That that is a different situation for us, and it's one we're going to face on several fronts. In terms of that kind of coercion, I think it's helpful to think in terms of some concentric circles. And uh, at the very center of that circle is the local congregation. And that local congregation, if it's ordered by the gospel, if it's committed to the, to the full authority and the total truthfulness of the word of God, and uh, if it orders its ministry according to the scripture, it, it's going to be protected in one sense, in ways that the extended circles in these concentric circles will not. It's going to be protected by some very important First Amendment protections. Now, those are only so good as the society will make certain but nonetheless, when you start looking at these concentric circles, I don't think the local congregation is anywhere near the first front in terms of the opposition that's going to come. I think if not for constitutional reasons, then even for political reasons, that will not be what comes first. I do believe it will come. That's not going to come first. You look at the outer circles of these concentric circles and just outside the local church would be the institutions that serve those local churches. And so here you would have Christian colleges, Christian theological seminaries operating for those churches, operated even by those churches, but uh, operating not as congregations, but as extensions of the congregation's work. The big three issues for Christian higher education are these. They're housing, hiring, and admissions. If we cannot operate housing, and that means all student services, and if we cannot hire on the basis of our Christian convictions, and if we cannot admit on the basis of our Christian convictions, then religious liberty is dead for our institutions. And it's not just going to be some sheriff showing up at the door saying you have to admit students against conscience or saying you have to hire professors against conscience. It's first of all going to be the line in which they say you're not going to be able to maintain your tax-exempt status. You're not going to be able to participate in uh, Title IV federal programs. The federal government is simply going to take a moral stance and saying we're not going to have anything to do with you financially and we're going to penalize you financially for standing outside the moral mainstream. And what we're going to see there, Dave, is I fear there are going to be many institutions that are simply going to cave. And uh, we, we have to be very prayerful about that. We have to be determined that that will not be true of our churches. That will not be true of the institutions over which we have responsibility and stewardship. And at this particular moment, we've got to be particularly clear. We are not going to bend the knee to Caesar. If we have to lose some kind of funding, if we have to lose tax exemption, that is a price we will pay for conviction. But that doesn't mean we're not going to do everything we can to fight uh, to keep uh, what is rightly a matter of religious liberty. If you go out to the next circle, it's not just churches at the center. It's not just Christian institutions. It's Christians involved in the marketplace in that next of these circles. And they're going to be on the front lines right now. Many of them already have been. If you're working for a Fortune 500 corporation with a very progressive, as they would uh, call it, uh, diversity policy, if you're being graded in terms of a diversity score, in terms of uh, whether or not you can get a job or keep a job or get a promotion, all these things are already being factored in, and it's going to be very coercive. And it's not going to be coercive just towards people who work for corporations who take these stances. 
It's going to be very coercive against Christians involved in their own private businesses. And uh, because what we're going to see is that the government's increasingly going to use all its powers of coercion. And that's not just at the federal level, but at the state level and even at the local level to compel compliance with the new moral regime. And uh, that's going to put many, many Christians in very, very difficult situations. You know, Dave, I think something else is coming that a lot of people haven't thought about, and that is that certain professions or job categories are going to be almost virtually closed to Christians who operate on the basis of biblical conviction. And uh, what we're looking at here is something that's actually a bit different than what came a generation ago with the advent of legalized abortion with Roe v. Wade. Because in the aftermath of the Roe v. Wade decision, a lot of states, indeed a majority of states, quickly put into place protections for medical professionals such as doctors so that they would not be legally required to perform an abortion. And uh, even as those exemptions are now very much under attack state by state, it's interesting that it's going to be very difficult to even put into the law now, given the, the speed of this moral revolution, any kinds of similar protections for Christians who are working in the marketplace. Al, I love what you said about not bending the knee to Caesar. Really, that's exactly what Truth Remains is all about, and really looking back over the course of history to those faithful men and women who have stood the test in a much severer way than than we have. We're not facing uh, death by fire and some of the other extremes that others have gone before us. Getting back to the topic, Justice Kennedy, in the majority opinion, stated, and I want to read this for you, that we, quote, may continue to advocate with utmost sincere conviction that by divine precepts, same-sex marriage should not be condoned, end quote. What do you think that means in reality? You know, Justice Kennedy really effectively conscribed, indeed he gutted religious liberty by using two and only two verbs, teach and advocate. Now, when you look at the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and we need to keep in mind every time we say this, that the framers of our Constitution did not discover and invent religious liberty. They weren't claiming to have created it. They were claiming to have respected it. They understood it to be a God-given right. They understood it to be the Creator's gift to His human creatures. They were respecting it. But the First Amendment to the Constitution, without which, let's remember, the Constitution would not have been ratified in the first place, It speaks of the free exercise of religion. It doesn't speak merely of teaching and advocating. We've been noticing something over the last couple of decades. We've noticed, especially in the last several years, especially in the current presidential administration, the redefinition of religious liberty to so-called freedom of worship. And what they're really trying to do is to say, religious liberty is now limited to what takes place in your church, maybe in your house or in your theological seminary. It has nothing to do with what takes place in the larger culture. That is not the First Amendment. That's not the free exercise of religion. And by the way, how long do we expect even what Justice Kennedy affirmed there to have any traction whatsoever? It's really interesting that you pointed to Canada because Canada also has in its own Charter of Liberties an affirmation of religious liberty. But that affirmation of religious liberty has not prevented any kind of preaching against homosexual behavior as called for by Scripture being classified as a hate crime. It hasn't prevented people being sanctioned merely for citing a Bible verse that names the sinfulness of homosexuality in public. It hasn't protected Christians and Christian institutions in Canada from even teaching and advocating, to use Justice Kennedy's words. And and so what we're looking at here is the fact that, uh, that Justice Kennedy, in that paragraph, just basically gutted religious liberty. He did so with most people not even noticing it. 
and the assurances he gives that protection will be granted and respect will be extended to those churches that teach and advocate contrary to the moral vision he gave. That's really undermined by the fact that, as the Chief Justice noted in his dissent, Justice Kennedy and his colleagues in the majority vilified the opposition. So it's one thing to say churches will be free to teach and to advocate according to their religious convictions. That's the way they would put it. It's another thing, just in the same opinion, to say those who hold such beliefs and teach such things are basically holding to an an evil ideology that uh, is rooted in nothing more than moral animus. So here's something that's been on my mind, and I know it's on the minds of our listeners. Why does authentic biblical Christianity find such fierce opposition from people that count themselves the advocates of tolerance? Oh, David, I absolutely love that question. Let's just think about that for a moment. The advocates of tolerance. You know, that's never good news when it's expressed just that way. For one thing, if you're operating out of a Christian worldview, toleration is not what we are called to in Scripture. We are called to love of neighbor. That's a lot different than toleration. We're not called to tolerate others. We're actually called to love them. Toleration's a really low level. It's a, it's a really low goal and goalpost. And, uh, and, and yet, when you hear it, it's used by those who claim to be high-minded. There's a history to the use of the phrase toleration when it comes to religious beliefs. And uh, going back to, for instance, a, a grant of religious toleration, it was very condescending. It was saying, we believe you're wrong we believe that you're so wrong, you can't be a part of, uh, of mainstream society, but we're going to accept you at some level in the margins of society. That's where that phrase religious toleration comes from. That is not the same phrase as religious liberty, must not be confused with it. But the word tolerance became a particularly problematic word at the midpoint of the 20th century. And that's when in the aftermath of World War II, and especially in the social revolutions that were taking place in Europe at the time, You had the rise of philosophers who were claiming that toleration had to be redefined simply because the moral imperative and and the man behind so much of this was the philosopher known as Herbert Marcuse. And he actually wrote about tolerance in an essay he wrote on toleration by suggesting that toleration had to be redefined so that it did not tolerate all things that shouldn't be tolerated. And in particular, he's writing from the far, far left. He said that it would be insane to tolerate ideas that would be subversive of toleration. And so if you follow his logic, it's right back where you could have almost George Orwell in 1984 writing, here you have the word toleration to mean its exact opposite. In the name of toleration, we're not going to tolerate anything that is subversive to our idea of toleration. And that's exactly what took over in the French universities in 1968. That's what took over in, in so many American universities in the 1960s and 70s. That's where so many who are in the mainstream media, that's what they really think toleration is. Toleration means tolerating everything except whatever we believe to be intolerant and incompatible with toleration. And when you ask the question exactly as you did, it puts those who believe in the fact that God has spoken and revealed himself in an inscripturated revelation. It puts those who believe in biblical authority in the position of understanding that our worldview starts with the very point that that worldview centrally rejects. The fact that there is some objective reality, the fact that there is some ontological truth, the fact that there is a scripture, which is the word of God, to which the issue is not just our moral response, but our obedience. That that is something that is so contrary and contradictory to their worldview, they see us as downright dangerous. And, and that's what we if we fail to understand, we really don't get. And that is, 
that when those who are driving this moral revolution, especially those who have been the, the, the primary ideological influences on the secular left, when they look to us, they don't just see us as backwards and Bible-bound. They see us as dangerous oppressors of humanity, as those who, beholden to a written divine revelation and the idea even of monotheism, as some of them will, will attack, we are then repressive by the very fact that we believe that a truth exists that is not amenable to, uh, to being conformed to the moral demands of the age. That makes us moral outcasts. And what a society does with moral outcasts is to make very clear our outcast status. And uh, we can count on the fact that that's what's going to be happening. And that's where, if it were anyone else, they'd be having to hit the panic button and say, well, what do we do now? But this is where Christians say, we can't hit the panic button because this is New Testament Christianity. This is exactly what we understand the church to have been born into, into a repressive regime, into a regime that was headed by a man who himself claimed to be none other than God. And so what we see in the book of Acts, when we see Paul on trial, is, uh, is very much the same kind of pattern that, uh, at least in logic, if not in law, is going to be more and more apparent around us. And, and you say, well, that's an exaggeration. Well, let me go with you to a tenure hearing at the local prestigious university. Let me go with you into the diversity committee meeting at the local Fortune 500 company. Let me go in with you to the conference in which the justices debated the Obergefell decision and a majority came out with this decision. If you were in those places and you heard that conversation, it would be exactly what we're talking about right here. That's so helpful. Basically, what you're saying is our hope is not in the culture, which really brings me to the question, how invested should believers be in the political climate? Should the church just withdraw in the wake of such abject rebellion? Well, that's one of the most tempting thoughts right now. I, I, I can tell you that uh, it, it does seem like if that were an option, that is uh, just withdrawing from this, uh, from this picture and from all political responsibility and from cultural responsibility, that, that would be a very convenient and comforting option for us right now. Uh, I think most of us who've been on the front lines of this are, are, uh, are, are frankly heartbroken and exhausted uh, in, in terms of what's been going on and uh, its effects on the culture. But the reality is there's no place to go. There, there is no withdrawal possible. Uh, we, we can go live in caves and uh, we will still be affected by the culture around us and, and even by the Supreme Court decision. You know, uh, when I lecture on this, I often talk about the Amish temptation, uh, the Anabaptist temptation to just withdraw from the culture and go create a village and, and uh, you know, be completely self-sustaining. But, uh, and my wife and I are surrounded often by Amish farms as, as we're here in Kentucky. And uh, you'll notice as you drive along the road that the Amish here in Kentucky, and by the way, they lost a Supreme Court uh, decision on this. They have to have this big very radiant red triangle on the back of their horse carts because the government says if you're going to be on the road you have to have that and the, the government says you may not have electricity in your house but if you're going to have a dairy farm you got to have electricity and you have to have a telephone line and you have to meet osha requirements in your barn so even the amish as it turns out haven't withdrawn as much as they intended to or wanted to and uh while we can respect that impulse we have to say you know evidently that's not working now, at the same time, we're being stripped of some illusions here. There have been some Christians who, for the better part of the last 30 years or so, thought that we were just one election away from some major victory in the culture. And uh, anyone who believes that now has to understand that even if 
and, and, and this is just kind of a thought exercise. Even if we were to win, say, every election at every level for some conceivable amount of time, it would still be a very long time before any kind of real moral change in the opposite direction could take place because the American people effectively not only allowed this, but set the stage for this. And, and so the problem is a lot bigger than an election. And, uh, and by the way, I don't think uh, the, the plausible scenario about winning all those elections is all that likely either, because the culture has changed. It has fundamentally changed around us. And we're not one election away from some great cultural victory. But at the same time, we do have a political responsibility, and we can't evade that responsibility, especially when citizens are invested with the vote and Christian citizens included among them then the decision even not to vote is itself a decision to vote by not voting. There's no way to escape this. And furthermore, the instructions given to us by our Lord is that the first commandment is that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind. And the second is like to it. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love of neighbor doesn't allow us to just say, we're going to seal ourselves off from our neighbor. And, uh, And our political or cultural responsibility, and by the way, we really can't sever those, uh, that, that responsibility is, is for us a matter of obedience to Christ in terms of being salt and light, uh, being leaven uh, in a society around us. And we need to recognize that it's not even just about politics, as if you could say that. It's because it's a part of an entire monoculture. Uh, the products you buy in the grocery store, the places where you do business, uh, the schools where you send your children, the activities within the larger society, they're all essentially, and Christians have understood this throughout the centuries, they are essentially political acts, and they are laden with moral importance. There is no place to hide. Uh, Now, we are, again, humbled. We're not an election away from some kind of major shift in the culture, but we're also humbled by this. We do have a responsibility to the culture. There's no way out of it. There's nowhere to hide. There's no escape hatch. And so we are, and we believe by God's sovereignty, given in this time a unique responsibility, and the big issue for us is going to be faithfulness. I love that word faithfulness. Really, it's something that's near and dear to my own heart, that the generation that comes behind us and even those uh, who are around us would learn to be faithful to the truth, no matter what it costs, no matter who abandons the true faith, that we would be faithful to the very end. This ruling marks a fundamental shift, and many Christians are wondering how to live in a society that has revolted against God's law. Scripture could not be clear about homosexuality and the consequences of sin. Now, encourage our listeners, what should our perspective be as we prepare for the days ahead? Well, David, the way you ask that question gets right to the core issue. That's the gospel. And uh, that is the good news of salvation that is brought to us who are sinners desperately in need of that salvation. And that comes to us by the accomplished atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It comes down to the fact that as the Apostle Paul makes clear, we come to know ourselves as sinners utterly in need of a Savior because the Scripture is utterly honest about what our sin is and thus indicts every single one of us as a sinner. In Romans chapter 7, Paul could not be more clear about how we should be thankful for the law in making clear our sin so that we would know of our need for a Savior, and not just for a Savior, but the sole Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would believe in him, come to him by faith, that we would repent of our sins, and that we would find salvation in him, that we would be justified on the basis of Christ and Christ alone, that we would be justified by faith and faith alone. And that alone explains how a sinner who otherwise has no hope, no possibility of rescue, finds salvation, full acquittal from sin, 
and uh, is declared by God to bear the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, how, how that sinner comes to be saved, comes to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the gospel that requires us to be absolutely candid and honest about sin, not because we're trying to hurl an indictment at our children, uh, at our neighbors, uh, at the gay community, or anyone else. Uh, the Bible does that, but as Romans 1 makes clear, it does that as it hurls that indictment against every single one of us. And, and you know, here's the grave danger, Dave. If we ever back off of the Bible's candor about sin, we are actually backing off of the power of the gospel. Because when we come to a verse such as what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have that very biblical affirmation that we are sin. And if we do not know that we are sinners utterly without hope, then we don't understand why it is such good news that he made him to be sin for our sake in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what's required and given to us in Scripture is the specificity about our sin. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, I didn't know I was a coveter, and thus I didn't know I needed a Savior in that sense until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And what we do if we redefine sin as revealed in Scripture in any way is that we effectively say to people, that's really not the sin you thought it was, and you really don't need Jesus for that. You really don't need a Savior for that. That's what we can't do. So what must we do? We must preach the gospel in season and out of season. Preach every word of scripture in season and out of season. We have to understand that that kind of conviction may well marginalize us with some of our own loved ones who don't understand why we are so steadfast on this issue and, and immovable and transigent, as a matter of fact. And, and our neighbors are going to be scratching their heads in greater wonder, wondering, why won't you just join the revolution and, uh, and celebrate what we celebrate? And we're going to find the society saying, look, you're going to lose privileges if you don't go along with this. And we have to say, well, we'd lose a lot more if we did. We would lose our integrity. We would lose our affirmation of biblical authority. We would lose the power of the preaching of the gospel. And that is why the church exists. You know, Dave, when you think about it, here's our predicament. Every other organization on the planet can make it up as it goes along. That's effectively what's going on. The Rotary Club can change its rules anytime it wants. The Boy Scouts of America, as we've seen, they can change their criteria anytime they want. The local university can change its expectations for housing, hiring, and admissions, and, uh, and the newspaper probably doesn't even give it any attention. Everyone around us can change. Liberal churches, well, their very platform is everything can change. Doctrine can change. Theology can change. Morality can change. Our preaching will change. It's going on around us at virtually every level, and there we stand saying, we can't move, we can't change. The Word of God endures forever. That's why in my immediate response to this decision, when I said, on the one hand, everything's changed, you really can't exaggerate the impact of this decision. On the other hand, for the Christian church and for us alone, nothing has changed. The preaching of the Word of God hasn't changed. The authority of the Word of God hasn't changed. The inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. And most importantly, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, and by the way, that means marriage hasn't changed. That's where we're really going to be outside the mainstream because we're going to understand that people around us are going to say, look, marriage has been redefined. Marriage has been reformulated. Look at the latest change in marriage. And, and we have to say, no, marriage actually hasn't changed. And, and this gets to a very, very interesting point that we really need, to, really need to think about. Many of those who are looking to be married, that's the term they will use as same-sex couples, are looking for 
what amounts to a spiritual and theological validation of that same-sex relationship. And, you know, there are going to be liberal churches who are going to say, hip, hip, hooray, we'll conduct your ceremony. There are going to be ministers on that liberal side who are going to say, I'll be glad to be the efficient. There are going to be all kinds of people who are going to come around and throw rice or whatever they throw these days and say, whatever's eco-friendly, I guess. And, and, and they're going to say, oh, we're joining in the celebration. But, you know, when that couple really understands what they've done, my guess is they're not going to believe they actually received the validation that they were looking for. In Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about the conscience that is implanted within us, and that conscience is corrupted by sin like every other aspect of our being. But that conscience is still there, and that's why we also as Christians have to understand, even as the society is trying to tell us that they know this is right and they have no question this is right, my guess is that inside they're really not so confident it's right. And uh, so this affords us a real opportunity. By remaining steadfastly committed to the Word of God, it gives us an incredible opportunity to be the only people to whom anyone can turn who will actually say, no, it isn't right, and here's why, and here's the bigger issue, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you. That was so good. You know, at Truth Remains, we like to say men and philosophies come and go, but truth remains, and and really, that's exactly uh, what you've summed up for us, that Everything around us can be changing and does change and moves and shifts, but we have a faith that is unshakable. Thank you, Al, for your time and your wisdom. It really is my prayer that God will enable us to stand firm on the foundation of his word and make us faithful in these days. Dave, thanks so much for the honor of this conversation. I really made my most emphatic point as I answered that last question. But, uh, but let me say this. There is going to be the temptation for all of us to think that uh, now, in the aftermath of this decision, we're all going to have to answer one time as to what we think about it. We're going to have to say something to our churches. We're going to have to say something to our neighbors. We're going to have to say something one time, and, and it's really important to say the right thing. Well, it's really important to say the right thing, but we're not going to get away with saying it one time. And uh, this is where I just want to encourage us all to understand that on questions of this magnitude where the gospel's at stake, it's at stake every time we open the Word of God. It's at stake every time we gather together for worship. It's at stake every time we preach or teach God's Word. It's at stake in every conversation with our children. It's at stake in every conversation with our friends. It's at stake all the time because of the centrality of the issues that are here involved. And so that will be my closing word. Just understand, you're going to have to give that answer over and over and over again. Just remember that warning from Scripture. Those who sow the wind will reap the whirlwind. That's where ministry is going to be for the rest of our time. We're going to be ministering in the face of a whirlwind. I'm so glad you've joined us today, and I hope this program has ministered to you. And please remember that the ministry of David Parsons and Truth Remains is completely dependent on your support to continue. Would you consider partnering with us? I'd like to invite you to join the Truth Remains Fellowship by mailing a tax-deductible donation to Truth Remains at P.O. Box 33187, Granada Hills, California, 91394. You can also make your gift by calling toll-free at one 888 36 truth or donate online at truthremains.org thank you so much for listening and now for david parsons and the truth remains team i'm your host jim tuck thanking you for your support and reminding you that men and philosophies come and go but truth remains <laughs>